Turn with me in your Bibles, John chapter 1. We're picking back up in our exposition of the Gospel of John, and we're going to be in verses 19 through 34, a big old chunk that we're going to be covering, but we're going to try to do it in a timely manner. Uh, what we've been looking at for the past 18 verses is John's prologue. Now that just means that John's opening statements to the book, that what he's going to say, and now he's transitioning to narrative. Now we're getting to the actual story of what he's going to say. Uh, we're looking at the first big major section of the book of John. It was one chapter 1 verse 19 through the end of chapter 12. This is Jesus's public ministry. We're beginning to step into that and the first character that we're going to get introduced to is is John the Baptist, the other John. And John the Baptist, I'm going to give you a look towards the end of our passage. He's going to end his big opening scene saying the same thing that John the Apostle said at the beginning and the end of the prologue, that Jesus is God and salvation is through him alone. He's going to end up in that same place. So our outline this morning is pretty simple. We're just going to look at John saying, or John's going to answer the question, who are you, what are you doing, and who is Jesus? That's what he's looking at. He's going he's gonna to identify himself, he's going to identify his ministry, and he's going to identify Jesus. So turn with me to verse 19. We're going to begin the narrative, verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Now this is the opening verse of the main body of John's gospel, and it would be confusing if we didn't have three other gospels. If it didn't go Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John, then we would be like, what is going on in verse chapter 1, verse 19? Who is John, and what's going on, and why are they going out there to him? So John, the apostle, wrote this gospel with the understanding, and having been the last gospel writer, knowing that John's, or knowing that the, the, the John the Baptist has already been discussed. He's already been talked about. And if you've grown up in the church, then you can kind of, kind of just read through that and not skip a beat. But if you're just reading John, the Gospel of John, for the first time on your own, then you have no idea what's going on. So let's give ourselves a little bit of backfill with Matthew chapter 3. Let's learn about John the Baptist before we dig into what John has to say about him. So follow me. Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 and following. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. 
he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into barns, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now that is John. Now does it make sense that John 1, 19 says that all these religious leaders were coming out to him? That's a pretty provocative guy. That's a guy who's making a statement. He's in a sense, he's a religious spectacle in the Jewish world that people are coming out to see. And people that would usually go to the Jewish leaders are not going to them, and they're going all the way out to the other side of the Jordan to talk to John. So this is a pretty big deal. And as a side note, I think we should pick this up before we move too far. When God chooses to do a work of reformation, you know what he doesn't need or care about? Location, presentation, or sophistication. Just look at John the Baptist. Where's his location? Out in the middle of nowhere. He's not out in the woods tweeting, hey, come out here, I'm holding a, a message. How did the first person even find John all the way out there? But God did it. And then a presentation. How does John look? He's wearing the clothes of a poor person. You could even make the case he's wearing the clothes of a homeless person, a jobless person. So he doesn't look flashy, he doesn't look fancy in any way. And then sophistication. What was his message? What did he say when we read in Matthew 3? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Judgment is inevitable and you are guilty. End of message. When Jesus comes after me, he's going to execute that judgment. That's not a sophisticated message. That's very simple. So we need to note that about John. Because they come and they ask him who he is. In verse 20, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. See, this is, this is the Apostle John. Remember his redundancy? He's going to say it over and over again to make sure that we really get it. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed. So he says it uh, affirmatively and positively. But then John the Baptist's answer, have you looked at what his answer is? It's not an answer. They asked, who are you? They didn't say, who are you not? So he says right off the bat, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not him. I'm not the Christ. That's what Christ means. It's, it's the Greek word for Messiah. That's what he says he's not. And we know that some people thought that he was. Luke 3, 15 says that. Some people thought that he was the Messiah. So there's grounds for him to say that. But John doesn't deal with that issue, John the Apostle. He goes right to the heart of the matter. Look at verse 21. And then they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So now they're going to engage in a game of 20 questions. Because John's clearly not going to play ball. So they're like, well, then, are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet? No. So they engage in this banter back and forth. Why ask him if he's Elijah? We just take it for granted that they did ask him, but why would they ask him that? At this time, Elijah has been gone from the earth for 900 years. Do you ask if somebody that you meet that's strange is somebody that's been gone for 900 years? No. But why are they asking? Well, it's actually because they read their Bibles. Malachi 4.5, the last prophet uh, in the canon before the Gospels come, Malachi 4.5 says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So before God comes, the day of the Lord is uh, in prophetic literature. So in the minor prophets and the major prophets, the day of the Lord is a day of terror and horror for those who don't believe, a day of joy and exaltation for those who do believe. 
And before that day comes, before the end comes, Malachi, speaking for God, says that Elijah is going to come before that. So that's why they're asking that. Now, doesn't John the Baptist look a good deal like Elijah? Their ministry is very similar. And we don't have time to go back, but if you go back to 1 Kings and early parts of 2 Kings, John the Baptist, it's almost like he's trying to look like him. They're wearing the same clothes, they're eating the same food, and they're doing the same thing, wandering around the wilderness and making everybody mad by teaching the truth of God. Rugged guys, but they both were. Repent or be excluded from the kingdom of heaven. And these questioners don't know it, but they were actually dead on right for asking if he was Elijah or not. He is the prophesied Elijah to come. The angel of the Lord told his daddy he was. In Luke 1.17, talking to John the Baptist's dad, Zechariah, this is what the angel of the Lord tells him. He, John, will go before him, Jesus, in the spirit and power of Elijah. He is the guy. He's the prophesied Elijah that's going to come. And so they're right in thinking that that's who he is. Uh, Jesus confirms this fact elsewhere in the Bible. In Matthew 11, 12 through 14, Jesus says this. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who was to come. So Jesus says he is the guy. But John the Baptist doesn't know everything because he is not God. Jesus knows that because he is God. So in his mind, he can say, no, in all honesty, no, I'm not a resurrected 900-year-old dead guy. He can say that. But they go on and they ask, well, then are you the prophet? Well, why would they? Isn't, wasn't Elijah a prophet? Why are they asking him the same kind of question in two different ways? Yeah, he was a prophet, but he wasn't the prophet. You see, in Deuteronomy 18, when God is leading, if you've been watching our... Uh, Wednesday night Bible study going through the Old Testament in Deuteronomy, there's this moment about the prophet. God tells Moses there's going to be a prophet who comes up after you, who is like you, but is greater than you. He will speak everything that I've ever told him. He will never deviate from my ways. In Deuteronomy 18, 15 and 18, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And then God says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Now, again, they're asking John the Baptist, are you the prophet? Because they read their Bible, and they're looking for this guy. But John denies that title as well. So now they're done playing 20 questions. Verse 22. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? They're like, okay, look, man, we're done playing 20 questions. we got to get our bosses off our backs. Just tell us who you are so we can get out of here. We're sick of being out here. All four gospel accounts give the same answer in verse 23. He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Isaiah 40, verse 3 is where John is pulling that. And we read it already in Matthew chapter 3. They all affirm that this is who John is. He is the voice crying in the wilderness. He is the one that Isaiah said must come before the Messiah comes. He is that individual. And then did you notice the differences between those two? 
Jesus is the Word. Remember that? The Word made flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And what does John say he is? He's just a voice. He's a voice, not the Word. He is the means of communication. Jesus is what is being communicated. He is the substance. John's just the noise. So he differentiates himself that way on purpose. Now, John the Baptist didn't know the entire plan for his role in the Messiah, but what he did know is that he was the forerunner. He was absolutely clear on that. And he was to declare, he's like the herald running in front of the king's entourage as the king goes from village to village. The job of that herald was to run into town before the king and the caravan got there and say, the king is coming. And you better be right with him before he gets here. He's a herald proclaiming the king. He is not the king himself. And John knew that about himself. And he's the voice of one crying in the wilderness that God promised centuries prior that he would send a forerunner before he sent his savior. And he would be crying in the wilderness. Now, John is actually located in wilderness, right? He's on the other side of the Jordan River, not in settled territory. It's wilderness. But what he's really in the midst of is a spiritual wilderness. He's in the midst of a spiritual desert. So John the Baptist, what he's done is he's peaked and revived an interest in holiness and obedience to God. And Jesus is going to come in after him and carry on to fullness the ministry that he began and could never finish because he was just a man. And Jesus is a God-man, the God-man. So now we're clear on who John is. Well, now they're going to move into what are you doing? So John's identified himself. Now he's going to identify his ministry in verses 24 through 28. So the lackey troop of the Pharisees, they're going to keep pressing in. Verse 24. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, verse 25, then why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. So the significance of John saying to them, I'm the voice crying in the wilderness, doesn't seem to resonate with them. We would presume that they would know that verse, but that doesn't fit with their theological narrative. They were looking for a cross-section of those three characters in the Old Testament, the Christ, the prophet, and Elijah, assuming that they've got to be all three, or they're going to be all at the same time, or three in one, what's going on? They're not clicking with the voice crying in the wilderness, this forerunner concept. So now they're kind of asking them, what gives you the right to baptize? What gives you the right to host this ministry out here, out from under the umbrella of any synagogue or any organized religion? Who are you to do this? They weren't looking for a voice. They were looking for those three individuals. And they're particularly concerned about his act of baptism. Now, when we read this about John the Baptist, that doesn't mean that Baptist churches are the actual real ones because theirs is the only name that appears in the Bible. <laughs> this is a different kind of baptism. This is not the kind of baptism that we practice here in the New Covenant. It's not the same thing. So we baptize, as all Protestants, we baptize as a sign and seal of the New Covenant. That's what our baptism is. That, that baptism which is instituted in the book of Acts, well, really from Jesus at the end of Matthew, Matthew 28, 20, um, 28, 18 through 20. Uh, and then in the book of Acts, baptism comes as we as Orthodox, little o, Orthodox churches practice the sign and seal of the new 
covenant of what God has promised. It's an outward symbol of an inward reality, and that, out, that inward reality being the, the washing of Christ's blood. That's an outward symbol of that. So in a sense, it replaces circumcision as the sign of the covenant. We're no longer having to do that as the sign. We are having to baptize as the sign. Now, John's baptism was not that kind. Now, why? Let's consider the context of what John is in. Is John the Baptist and every, everybody living inside the four Gospels, are they in the Old Covenant or the New Covenant? They're a part of the Old Covenant. They're not a part of the New Covenant. We're, I know we're reading the New Testament, but John and everybody listening to him are Old Covenant people. So they're still under the Old Testament law, as was Jesus himself. So John the Baptist, he serves as the last Old Testament prophet. He's the last guy in the lineage before the new covenant comes. So in a sense, John straddles the old and the new. He has one foot on either side of the old covenant and the new covenant, bringing those in the, uh, in the old into the new. And for us in the new, we can look back through him to really understand the old. So really what John's baptism is more like is a ceremonial washing because he serves as this bridge from the old covenant to the new covenant to bring into that new relationship that Christ himself is going to usher in. The best illustration I could think of this was my great-grandmother, Ruth Davison. She was born in 1896, and she died in 1998. She was 102 years old. I knew her, and she knew people who fought in the Civil War. That's insane. But she went from her, the, the family land still exists in Reagan, Texas, on Highway 6 between Waco and College Station, where that big Aggie barn is. There's no town there anymore. Lord rest its soul. They used to have a school. Uh, but my, we called her nanny, my nanny, she grew up making her own soap and cooking over a wood-burning potbelly stove to eventually watching cable TV and reheating leftovers in a microwave. That's crazy. I mean, she, she was born in an era where a man trying to fly was lunacy to where people then are flying all over the world in less than 24 hours. So she really served for us as our, in our family as a bridge between an old way of living and a new way of living in a way that you would appreciate what you had now based on what she lived through then. I mean, the Great Depression era was not something that she vaguely remembered. The Great Depression era was something that she lived through as an adult. And how did they help people out? How did they go through all of these kinds of things? I mean, she, she barely missed institutionalized slavery and then saw all the way for civil rights coming all the way through. I mean, she bridged all of that and helped us understand the new world versus the old world and what it was actually like. She used to go, she told my dad this one time, that they used to ride the buckboard wagon to the train tracks on Saturdays to go up to the station by the college and watch the boys play football in Mr. Kyle's field and then get back on the train and go back home and ride the buckboard all the way home. She's talking about going to Aggie football games, but it was, it was so primitive. So she straddled those two worlds, and John the Baptist does the same, but in a obviously vastly more significant way bringing the old into the new. 
And so his baptism was more, a lot more like ceremonial cleansing, ceremonial washing. It was a sign of contrition, of repentance for those who were under the old covenant. That they were going to come and just, I am a sinner and I am in need of cleaning. And it was, a, it, was a, it was a symbolic ceremonial type thing. Kind of like what Moses did in Exodus 24 when he sprinkles blood on all of the people. Uh, it, it's a symbolic ceremonial type cleansing. And, what, and it's also what you would do if you were not Jewish, but yet you wanted to become a part of that covenant community. You wanted to, you wanted to uh, in a sense, convert to, to Judaism. So you would, it's called being a proselyte, and you would wash like that. So the Jews got it. They've seen this before, and they get it. Gentiles are unclean. They're gross. They're dirty. They're outside of the covenant people. They're impure. They've been eating impure things their whole lives. They've been doing impure things their whole life. So, yeah, they need to go through that ceremonial washing. But what was different was John was saying to Jews, you need to repent, and you need to be washed. He was going to those who thought that they were clean and saying, you need to change. You need to consider yourself in the light of God. You are wrong. Those who, who were the keepers of the tradition, you are unclean. Now this, speaking of A&M, I did go there and graduate from there. And A&M, if you've never heard, takes pretty seriously some traditions that are Trivial, at best, who could say? Uh, but they take them super seriously. And there are right ways to walk and speak and talk in places you can go and right ways to watch football wrong way. You didn't know you could watch it wrongly. You can at A&M. You can watch it wrongly. There's even certain trees you can't walk under uh, even though there are paved sidewalks under them. You just can't do it. Lots of, lots of legalism running around there. And when I was in college, my roommates and I were what you are called uh, derogatorily as a two percenter. Uh, if you don't know what that means, that means that you're only giving two percent to the traditions, which is not good. And milk, that's great. That's the best kind of milk you can get. But at A&M, that's the worst thing you can be is a two percenter. You're not really giving your whole heart and soul to it. And we were actually pretty bad. One time, you know, we do the whole saw varsity's horns off thing. You sway back and forth. Well, one time at a basketball game. My roommates and I were on the end of an aisle, and we leaned against the sway to where they were hitting a wall, and they couldn't get all the way over. Needless to say, it did not go over well. We thought it was really funny. But the inside core of A&M is in that very word, the core of cadets. They view themselves, uh, and my dad was one of them, as the keepers of the tradition, that they are the ones who have the purity of it all, and everybody else who's not in the core, it's great that you do this, but it doesn't really matter. We are the purity. We are the reality. We keep the traditions and hold on to them because we started as a military school and we sent more officers to World War II than West Point did and on down the list. And what John the Baptist was, a, was essentially doing was going to the members of the core and saying, you are two percenters who don't even know how to sway right at football games. That would cause a riot. Yes, of course we do. John the Baptist was calling the nation of Israel to repent against their rebellion to God, just like Isaiah did, just like Daniel did, just like Ezekiel did, and Joel, and Micah, and Amos, and Elijah, and Elisha, and on down the whole list of prophets. He was no different than any of them. And it was the command of God through his chosen speaker that everyone 
who is trying to be obedient to God should come out to the Jordan River and be baptized and washed. Now, the questioners still don't get it. Look at verse 26. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. You see what John is saying? He's like, you guys are hung up on baptism, but all I'm doing is getting people wet. My bigger role is the voice in the wilderness crying to make straight the way of the Lord. None of this is about me. I'm not trying to build up for myself a ministry or a name or a new way to express what our fathers have handed down to us. I am here to tell you about somebody else. Somebody else is coming. None of this is about me. They keep going back to him. Who are you? Because he's a threat to the religious institution. And he keeps saying, this, there's one coming after me. This one coming after me is so great that I am too low. I am too worthless. I am so much of a dirt bag. I can't even pull the lace on his sandal. I'm not even worthy to do that. That is too high a job for me. That is too noble a task of me. And if you understood first century world uh, cultural practices, touching somebody else's feet is the lowest and most degrading thing that you could do. That's the most, that's only for slaves to do. And John says, I can't even do that for this guy, let alone host him in my house, let alone embrace him or consider him an equal. I'm too low and disgusting to just pull the string that keeps his sandals on his feet. Now keep that in mind for when we get to John 13. Because John the Baptist says, I'm too low, pathetic, disgusting, and dirty to untie his sandals. And in John 13, Jesus says, I am not too high to wrap myself in a towel and wash your feet. Keep that in mind for coming down later down the pipe. But in verse 28, these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing, i.e. this happened in the middle of nowhere. The Jordan River runs north and south. Israel and the nation of Israel is on the west side of it. So the Jordan over here, Mediterranean over here, John's on the outside of the Jordan. He's on the east side of the Jordan, in the middle of nowhere, not a part of their society. Now look at verse 29. He's identified who he is. He's identified his ministry. And now he's going to identify Jesus with this verse. The next day... He saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus now, finally, in the Gospel of John, appears on the scene. We've talked about him a whole lot. Chapter 1, 1 through 18, the prologue, talks about him a whole lot. This is the first time we see him. If John, the Gospel, is a movie, this is the first time the actor playing Jesus comes on the screen. This is the first time we actually see him. And what is he doing? He's coming out to John. Now, there's certain discussions about whether or not John has already baptized him by this point or not. Um, some say that he had already baptized him and Jesus is coming back out again. Um, but we're going to look at it from the perspective of Jesus coming out for the first time to be baptized. Because that's a point we need to talk about. Why did Jesus need to come out to John in order to be baptized? Well, Jesus says in Matthew 3, verse 15, that it was fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Remember, John's an Old Covenant prophet. He's an Old Testament prophet. 
and Jesus is, has got to be a perfectly righteous individual. So God works through, in the Old Testament, prophets. And what do the faithful people do when they hear the voice of God in the prophets? They do whatever they, he says. So God says through John the Baptist to come out and be washed. So Jesus does that, even though he has no sins to confess to John before he goes under the water. He's coming out to fulfill all righteousness because Jesus keeps perfectly God's word. He's an old covenant person and does whatever God calls them to do. Now, look at this moment. This is what I want to put us into. This is the big crescendo of our whole text this morning. Put yourself in John the Baptist's shoes. we got to immerse ourselves into his moment, in his eyes. He's a prophet. As a prophet, you wake up every single day to a fight. That's what's coming every day for you. Nobody wants to hear what he has to say, and he is the only one telling the truth. The only one speaking truly for God, and the establishment hates him for it. And his message is wildly unpopular with the churched crowd. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Wildly unpopular message. He's infuriating the religious leaders. I don't know if you caught it, but when we read Matthew 3 earlier, what did he call the Pharisees? Brood of vipers. That's a Bible way of saying sons of snakes. And who is the snake? Satan. So he's calling you sons of the devil. Nobody likes the prophet, and there is always somebody trying to kill the prophet because his message is uncomfortable. To, to give straight, non-sugar-coated truth is always unpopular. Life of a prophet is like the life of a wartime soldier. There's always friction. There's always tension. There's always a fight. And even though you have some people around you that may be favorable towards you and may like you, the overwhelming majority disapproves of you, suspects you, and dislikes you. You are telling people who think that they are right with God that they are not. And people who are not right with God but think that they are hate being told that they're not. And that's what John does all day, every day. And then one day, if you're John, you're going about your business. You're doing the work of the ministry. And in verse 29, the translation is somewhat unfortunate because it says the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, there's really this moment, uh, uh, the, the word that's used is a word that describes a rising up, he, like looking up, that he's down working and doing what he's supposed to be doing, and then he looks up and then he sees coming across the ground. He sees the Lamb of God. He sees redemption embodied walking towards him. He sees reconciliation taking the form of human flesh walking towards him. In that moment, in the midst of his day, the other prophets that spoke of God, that spoke of God's promise to save, that spoke of God's hatred towards sin, that called God's people to repent, Isaiah never got to see the suffering servant he wrote about. Moses never got to see the prophet like him that was going to come from the people of God. Micah never got to see the shepherd that would come from Bethlehem. But John... John gets to see the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world walking towards him. What 
a moment. John sees the fulfillment of centuries of prophecies walking towards him. God's been talking about this since Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And John the Baptist knows that his daddy is a priest. He's been reading his Old Testament. He knows that he's the voice crying in the wilderness. And then he sees the one who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God who takes away sin. Now when he shouts that out, there's got to be a lot of people who immediately have their minds run to Leviticus 16. Leviticus 16, if you remember from our Old Testament survey on Wednesday nights, that's the chapter about the atonement, about how the people of God are going to be made right with God every single year by the slaughtering of one goat and by one goat being confessed the sins on his head and then cast out in the wilderness to take it away. So it's paid for and it's removed. And so when you hear John the Baptist say, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, your mind, if you're a faithful Jew, runs to Leviticus 16, and then you have your mind blown. This is the final payment. Because the goat that I sacrificed last year is doing nothing for me this year. The goat that I sacrificed next year will do nothing for me the year after that. But that's the one who takes away the sin of the world. Do you notice that he said sin and not sins? We're not just paying for individual misdemeanors, individual transgressions and iniquities. We're talking about the entire entity of sin is taken away. Not just the little things that you've done this year. Oh, man, I forgot about that one. We've got to make sure that we get to the Day of Atonement on time. To make sure that that sacrifice counts, we got to be there. We're talking about the entirety of your sinful heart. Your sinful flesh is being taken away and not ritualistically. We talked about in Leviticus during our uh, Old Testament survey that killing a goat, God did not need a pile of dead goat bodies. Killing a lamb, he didn't need a bunch of chopped up bones after they're burned on the altar. That's not what God needed. God's not like, you know what? I think I'll just take my payment in rotting carcasses. He didn't need that. You needed it. You needed to see what your sin cost. Something living has to die that didn't do what you did. We needed to be made new, not just have a ritual done. And 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says that about Jesus. For everyone who believes in him, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. You are new, you are different now because of the Lamb of God. If we don't grasp this about Jesus, then we've missed the whole boat. J.C. Ryle, he was the Bishop of Liverpool, England, an Anglican in the 1800s, but was faithful to the gospel, a godly leader and pastor. He said this in his commentary. He said, we know nothing rightly about Christ until we see him with John the Baptist's eyes and rejoice in him as the lamb that was slain. We don't know anything about Jesus until we know this about Jesus. Now, Paul preached last Sunday and he said it wouldn't be a fitting sermon without a Spurgeon quote. And I took that, you know, that's, that's pretty fair. Sometimes I don't have Spurgeon quotes. This is not one of those times. I do have another one. Because he says this, 
when he preached on this very text, he said, John knew much of the Lord Jesus and could have pictured him in many lights and characters. He might especially have pointed him out as the great moral example or the higher form of life, the great teacher of holiness and love. Yet this did not strike the Baptist as the head and front of our Lord's character, but he proclaimed him as the one who had come in the world to be the great sacrifice for sin. So John the Baptist makes this declaration, and then now you have everybody's attention. Now everybody that's out in the wilderness looking around is looking at Jesus and then back at John, at John, then back at Jesus, and saying, explain this, brother. Who, who is he? John goes on in verse 30. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Now, John the Apostle already told us that back in verse 15. Remember that? That John the Baptist would say this. Here in the flow of the story, this is where John's actually saying. And he's saying, even though I was chronologically born before him as his cousin, he ranks over me because he existed before me. And anybody would have to be thinking, like, how did he exist before you? You are making a claim to deity. You are saying that he has always been. Because biologically... You came first. But that's not what John believes about himself. He's saying, this is the Lord, the one of whom I've been crying, make straight his way. Verse 31, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. He's like, I, I did not know exactly who he was going to be. So John is not God. We get that. He knows he's a voice crying in the wilderness, but he didn't know it was Jesus. He didn't know his cousin Jesus was the one that we're making the way straight for until, verse 32 and 33, and John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him, meaning on Jesus. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So John says, I didn't know it was him until I baptized him and the Lord's spirit came down like a dove and now I know it's him that I'm crying in the wilderness for. He is the one. He confirmed beyond a shadow of a doubt who he was, just like he said he would in Isaiah 61, one through two. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is the, this is the servant talking in, John, in uh, Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. God identifies Jesus as the one who takes away the sin of the world with the Holy Spirit. Now, what does that mean? That he baptizes with the Holy Spirit. That's been misconstrued for at least the past 120-something years. But ask ourselves first, what does John's baptism mean? John's baptism is a symbol of repentance, of a heart change, of a desire to be right with God. It's not in relation to salvation in that sense because that baptism could need to be redone, right? Just like the Day of Atonement every year needs to be redone, you could be in John's world, John the Baptist's world, and need to go get baptized again. Because you got unclean, you committed sin, you poured your life into sinfulness. What sinners need is not just a symbolic cleansing of sin. Sinners need an effectual cleansing from sin. 
Titus 3, 4, and 5 says that that is what we have through the Holy Spirit. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by, listen to this, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. We need really, sin to be really gone, effectually, not just symbolically. And that can only happen with the Holy Spirit. Because with Jesus comes the Holy Spirit, and with the Holy Spirit comes regeneration. Joel chapter 2 uh, talks about the Holy Spirit being poured out on the people of God. And in Acts chapter 2, Peter says, this is that time now. Here he is now being poured out upon us. John's baptism was an acknowledgement of guilt before God. And the Holy Spirit's baptism is the regeneration of the individual to be made new to be born again. John's baptism is an act of crying out for help. The Holy Spirit's baptism is the presence of the divine accomplishment of that help. It's actual redemption, not just kicking the can of judgment down the road. It's actual forgiveness. And in verse 34, John's testimony ends, I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Jesus is God, and the last Old Testament prophet says so. Jesus is not a skilled teacher. He's not the top dog of all prophets. He's not just somebody to be modeled after. He is God. He makes obsolete everything that came before him. He fulfills all the righteousness that the law requires, and he takes away the sin of the world. And if you do that, then your title is God alone. So John, the Baptist, ends his testimony where John, the apostle, ended his prologue. Jesus is God. So this is essentially John, the apostle, is in a courtroom trying to prove whether or not Jesus is the Messiah and takes away the sin of the world. And the first witness he calls is John the Baptist. He puts him up on the stand and says, how do you know that this Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Well, John has three reasons. He says, well, I know because I know who I am. I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. And I know what I was sent to do, to call a nation, the people of God, to repent. And I also know because when I baptized him, the Holy Spirit came down upon him as a dove. That was a divine sign from God to me as his prophet that this is the Lamb of God. Now, this testimony was coming... <coughs> from the first man to speak for God in 400 years. And we put that in context. Malachi ends the Old Testament. 400 years go by. No prophet. Nobody speaking for God. Nothing. Four centuries. Our country hasn't even been around for four centuries. Four centuries of silence. Then the first guy to speak for God when he chooses to break his silence is the one who ushers in as the forerunner, the Messiah, the Savior of all, the Lamb of God. And if John the Baptist, the first one to speak for God in 400 years, says that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, we would be wise to sit up and to listen. And what does it mean that the Lamb has taken away our sin? This is our application for the day. 
What does it mean? That he's taken away our sin. It means that if anyone has repented and trusted in Christ, then your sins are removed from you entirely. Isaiah 53.6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him or to be cast on him. Your sin is thrown on him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says something similar. For our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He took our sin. So it means for you, unbeliever, if you are here and you have not trusted Christ, it means for you that all the sin you've done in the past, including the sins you've done this morning, can be forgiven, can be removed from you right now if you will confess and trust in him. It means for you, believer in Christ, Christian, that you need to stop trying to pay for your sins now. I know it feels noble and I know it feels holy to flog yourself and to pay for your sins and to punish yourself, but it's not noble and it's not holy. In fact, it's in direct contradiction to the gospel because what you're saying when you do that is Jesus paid some of it to some of it, him I owe. Sin left a crimson stain. He washed me almost as white as snow. But Jesus paid it all. So we need to stop flogging ourselves. Now, Christian, it also means for you that you can't hold other people in your debt, particularly other Christians. Because what you're saying when you do that is, well, this Lamb of God takes away most of the sins of that Christian of that brother or that sister. And what I need to do is hold them accountable for the ones that Jesus didn't take away. I'm going to make sure that they pay the rest for what they did to me. That is also an abomination, according to 1 John 29, or John 1, 29. Christians, we're never done preaching the gospel to ourselves. We need only repent and believe once, but we need to hear the truth of the gospel every day that the Lamb of God took away the sins of the world, that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That if I have called upon his name, then he is my sacrifice once for all and has paid it forever. Therefore, Hebrews says that I can walk boldly into the presence of God, not arrogantly, but confidently, that he is my father and wants me here. So we preach that to ourselves daily and regularly. Now let me... Have you consider Genesis 22 as a closing illustration for this text? Now, when the Jewish listeners heard Jesus or John say that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, many of them went to Leviticus 16. Some of them also might have traveled in their minds to Genesis 22. This very famous moment, including the God, with the father of faith, Abraham. God tells him, you need to go to the top of Mount Moriah and sacrifice your son to me. And he goes. And along the way, as they're loading up, Isaac, his son, who's probably 13 at this time or so, notices something is wrong. Genesis 22, 7. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. 
But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham knows it's you. You are the lamb for the burnt offering. But do you hear Jay, or Isaac's voice? Behold, no lamb of God. Then he goes on. Abraham, already strengthened in faith, he replies in 22a, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. God will provide his own lamb. And he does. In that moment, when the knife is about to be plunged into Isaac's vitals, the angel stops him and provides a lamb stuck in the thicket. God did provide a sacrificial lamb, and God did provide a lamb for you to make atonement for your sins. He provided it. He provided him, and his name is Jesus, the Son of the living God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are entirely and utterly floored by your mercy. We who could not be more undeserving of your favor, you grant it to us. You, you give it to us. You call us to embrace it and to never doubt it. That your lamb who took away our sin forever can be trusted forever. And you are commanding all people everywhere to repent and believe the gospel. As you say through your speaker in Acts chapter 4. So Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for John the Baptist, just another brother in Christ, fulfilling the ministry that you've given, that you gave him. He knew who he was and he knew who he was not. He knew who Jesus was. And he pointed everyone to him and off of himself. We might learn much from him. And may we see the Lord Jesus through his eyes crying out with who probably tears in his eyes. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Because John knew that he needed his own sin taken away. So we thank you for this text today, Father. Bless it to our hearts. Let it ring in our minds as your eternal word, we pray, always does. Bless us as we continue to wander through the pandemic the social turmoil that we're in. Help us to be lights in the darkness. Help us to be faithful and kind, loving to each other. Give us great uh, patience and endurance. Uh, and we ask for uh, a removal of this plague. And we ask for us, uh, for our own strengthening during this time. That you have called all of us and have had all of us born to live in this day Help us to do so faithfully, faithfully for your glory and our good. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.